Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, as we'll look at verses 13 through 19 together this morning. And in these verses today, we look at the first recorded instance in Mark's gospel where the twelve are called to Jesus, that is the twelve disciples or also known as the twelve apostles that accompanied Jesus during his earthly ministry. People of God, give you a careful hearing to the word of God now as it comes to us from Mark 3, 13 through 19. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. Let's pray briefly together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that your word is sufficient for faith and for life. And Lord, we ask that you would lead us and guide us now by your spirit that we may see this sufficiency. That we may find in your word the very sustenance that our souls need. That we need today, Lord. Lead us and feed us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you may not know this, but I've been given several nicknames throughout the course of my life. Perhaps you've been given several nicknames yourself. One of them seems to have stuck, at least with those who are close to me in terms of my family. When I was a bit younger and living at home, I was given a nickname by one of my cousins. And this is how it played out. We had bred a whole litter of golden retrievers, seven female puppies to be exact. And I would rush home every single day from school during this time when these puppies were born. Rush home from school, change into my football uniform because I had football practice ten minutes later. But for nine of those minutes, I would lay down in the middle of the floor and have all the little puppies run to me and lay on top of my chest. And I would pet them and talk to them and say, oh, cute little puppies. Well, one day my cousin was in the home, unbeknownst to me, watching all of this play out. And after seeing that, she gave me the name or the nickname of Biff. Of course, after a fictional character in a popular movie during that time who was a bit of a meathead, something like a a football player, sort of a bullyish jock, but also one who had something of a hidden soft side to him. And so she called me Biff after seeing me with my cut-off t-shirt and my jock haircut and tough exterior, but cuddling these little puppies on the floor. Why do I tell you that? Well, in the passage we just read, we read about some of Jesus' disciples. In fact, 12 to be exact. And within those 12, we see that there are at least three, arguably even more, that have received nicknames. Nicknames. And in the story that I just told from my own life, my cousin was able to give me a nickname because she was able to observe my life. And take interest in what I was doing and develop insight into who I was. And so she was able to grant me a nickname. And I think we see something of that in in the passage before us today. That not only do we see so far in Mark's gospel that many have taken interest in Jesus Christ and have flocked to him. But we even see that Jesus takes interest and his own disciples. So much so that he's able to grant, at least to some of them, nicknames. 
Well, it's a good reminder to us as we begin this morning that Jesus takes interest in all of those that he calls to himself, even you and me. Let's reciprocate this interest this morning and gain more insight into the Lord Jesus Christ as we take a closer look at what we just read in Mark three thirteen through 19 concerning the 12. First, we are told of the location that we find Jesus, and he went up on the mountain. Now, we're not told which mountain this is. In fact, it's probably not even that important, the exact location or geographical feature that Jesus is on in terms of its name. But we do know, and Mark has made sure that we know that Jesus went up on the mountain in order to call his disciples to him. Now, what should we think of then when we hear this imagery of the mountain and this locale that Jesus has chosen to call the twelve to him and commission them and ordain them as his servants? Well, any Jew of Jesus' day, if they were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, or if many of you who are familiar with your Bibles today, understand that important things happen On the tops of mountains, especially when God calls his people to him on a mountain. In fact, one of the memories that we should all have as Christians who take an interest in the whole of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, is that very encounter when God called Moses up onto the mountain to instruct him and to ordain him to be his servant, to act on his behalf. And that's what we need to see in the backdrop here to understand the significance of what Jesus is doing. When we see Jesus calling to himself those he wanted up onto the mountain, it's another subtle way that Mark is reminding us of Jesus' identity. He's reminding us that just as Jehovah called Moses onto the mountain to speak with him and to ordain him into his service. So now Jesus is calling his servants to himself on the mountain to speak to them as Jehovah himself. Jesus is up on the mountain and he, as Mark goes on to say, called to him those he himself wanted. Let's unpack this statement a little bit more. As well, let's notice the first uh, or two basic realities that Mark records for us here that happened on the mountain. The first is that Jesus is calling to himself a people, and he's calling many to one unifying focal point himself. And these are simple words and words that we could quickly gloss over. But if we were to do so, we would lose, I think, some important insight. Some commentators have insightfully pointed out something here that in this little phrase in verse 13, where Jesus is once again calling to himself people. Some commentators have noted this is something of a microcosm of the church. A small glimpse of the church. And they say this because Jesus is calling to himself those he wanted. Out of the crowds that have been amassing, Jesus is now calling to himself a particular portion of these people. He doesn't call all, but he does call some. And if you know anything about the Greek word for church, embedded within The Greek word for church is this notion of being called out. The Greek word, of course, being ekklesia. Kaleo being that Greek verb to call. And so we're seeing here in a microcosmic sort of way, called out ones from the masses being called to Jesus himself. It's a good reminder that this has always been the way the church 
has been built. Whether it's here in the calling of the twelve, or when it was when the Lord called the first disciple to himself back in Genesis chapter 12. Remember when the Lord went to one named Abram from the Ur of the Chaldees and he called him to himself? Or we could fast forward to when Peter. One of the twelve mentioned here will go on to preach a wonderful sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And he will assure the crowds there that the promises of God for the church are for as many as the Lord God will call to himself. So if you've ever wondered how the church has come about and how the church continues to come about... It has come and will continue to come through the Lord calling people to himself. The same way that the twelve here are called to Jesus, Jesus continues to call people to himself. The second reality we need to notice here is not only on the action of Jesus calling, but on that qualification of who is actually called We see that the emphasis here is not on the desire of the called, but rather on the desire of Jesus Christ. The emphasis is clearly on Jesus' purpose, his will, and not the will of those who are called. And that's important to notice because I think we oftentimes think that Jesus issues some sort of call when he's building his church, but then ultimately places the hearer in the driver's seat and says, this call is for all of you, but it's up to you and it's up to your desire to come to Jesus. As if Jesus wanted these men to come to him, but ultimately... It was their desire that had to decide the matter. That Jesus' desire was only half the equation. Well, that's not what we see here. In fact, when we look at the last sentence there in verse 13, we see the result of Jesus calling those he wanted, and they came to him. This call was an irresistible call that Jesus put out. It was a call that came from an irresistible will. In fact, that's the word behind wanted here. At least wanted in the New King James. If you're to look at the Greek, that is the Greek word for will. It's the same word that we've seen Jesus already use back in chapter 1 when he was willing to heal a man. In fact, he even willed him. To be healed or willed him to be cleansed. And in that moment he was cleansed. This is the efficacious. This is the sovereign omnipotent will. That is in view here. Simply put Jesus gets what he wants. Not because he's spoiled. But because he's sovereign. Jesus' will is sovereignly executed here in Mark 3, verse 13. Of course, we see then that they came to him. Others at this point in Mark's gospel have come to Jesus out of a great need, seeing that they have a malady, an infirmity, an illness, or others being brought to Jesus out of, from a loved one because they were uh, possessed by a demon or an unclean spirit. Others have come to Jesus to satisfy a great need of healing or exercising a demon. But Jesus' disciples come to him here in Mark's gospel simply because he calls them. And he calls them simply because 
He wanted them. And so once again, not only do we need to see Mark telling us that Jesus is Jehovah as he goes up on the mountainside, but he's also that same Jehovah who has an omnipotent will to do as he pleases, to do as he wills. Jesus is the omnipotent God-man, carrying out his perfect plan and purposes. What we see Jesus' plan and purpose is to appoint the twelve now as he's up on the mountain and he has called to himself those he wanted. So verse 14, we see this appointment of the twelve. Appointment here you might also have in your Bibles ordained. And that's the notion here that Jesus has set these men apart for a very specific and special purpose and task. And we can begin to think, okay, well, why 12? Why only 12? Well, some surmise that this would have been customary for a rabbi to only take on 12 students. That this was a typical number. Uh, that it was functionally the best number. It was sort of the perfect student-to-teacher ratio of 12 to 1. And of course, there could be some functional reasons behind this, as Jesus is wisdom incarnate and would not do anything that would be contrary to perfect wisdom. But I think more importantly here, we need to see that there is a highly symbolic significance to the number 12. Just as the mountaintop experience would conjure up Old Testament imagery, so would this number 12. And the most predominant way that the number 12 comes to us in Scripture up to this point is, of course, with the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, it would be hard to be a Jew in Jesus' day and age and not immediately think about those 12 tribes of Israel. That descended from Israel himself. Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And then Israel's sons. Well, so what's the significance then that Jesus is appointing 12 disciples or 12 apostles as he's going to send these men out as apostles? What's the significance of the 12? Well, I think to appreciate the significance, we could turn to a passage like Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 9 through 14, we get this wonderful description of the church. This wonderful description of the bride of the Lamb. The bride of Jesus Christ. And what's remarkable about this description is that the number 12 comes up. In at least two places. One of the places that number 12 comes up. In Revelation 21. Is there in verse 12. Listen to this description of the church. Also she had a great and high wall. With 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. And names written on them. Which are the names of the 12 tribes. Of the children of Israel. And then verse 14. Now the wall of the city. Of course this is symbolic language. Speaking of the new Jerusalem. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. It's in a passage like this that. We see then the importance of the 12 that are being called here. This is not simply a, a practical decision on Jesus' part as a rabbi to optimize the student to teacher ratio. Rather, Jesus' calling of the 12 is part of the continuity of the unfolding plan of God to bring together the people of God under the old covenant of grace. Represented by the twelve tribes of the children of Israel and the people of God under the new covenant of grace that is about to be instituted by Jesus Christ 
And the two of these together, the 12 tribes representing the people of God of old, and the 12 apostles representing the people of God of the new, both together comprise the bride or the wife of the Lamb. Both together comprise the new Jerusalem. So we see here not simply a pragmatic decision on the part of Jesus, but the calling of the twelve, which brings about that next epoch for the church of God in Jesus Christ. The twelve indicating an advancement in the continually unfolding plan of God from Genesis to Revelation to have a bride for Jesus Christ. In fact, you can think all the way back to Genesis in the very early chapters when Adam and Eve are joined together in that marriage union. And then we can think about what the Apostle Paul said about that marriage. It was a profound mystery and it referred to Christ and his church. Even that very first marriage between man and woman was a mystery that pointed to Christ and his church. The bride then consisting of all the faithful in Jesus Christ from the 12 tribes and from those who would build their life upon the foundation of the 12 apostles. That's the overarching plan and purpose of God in Scripture and that's what the 12 should prime us to think about and prompt us to think about. But let's continue to unpack verse 14 and we see... But there are specific purposes for why Jesus called the twelve. And the first one we see is that they might be with him. That they might be with him. The disciples, especially the twelve that are being spoken of here, They didn't learn the ropes two hours a day or even just in synagogue on the Sabbath day. Mark is sure to tell us that Jesus called these men and chose these men that they would be with him. They're with him constantly, almost incessantly. Yes, in the mountaintop experiences of his ministry, no doubt. But also in the mundane, in the day-to-day. For three years, these twelve got to experience day in, day out, 24-7 fellowship with the Lord incarnate. They were with him by his design. And it's sometimes tempting to think that Well, these 12 were apostles. This was a a with him experience that was only privy to these 12. Oh, and oh, how wonderful it would have been to be with Jesus during those three years in his earthly ministry. Oh, if only we could have this same kind of with him reality today as his current disciples. Well, I want to encourage you today that this promise of being with him or this reality that these 12 got to experience being with Jesus is actually something very similar to what you and I get to experience today. In fact, when Jesus spoke to his disciples about leaving them physically, He also assured them that he would not leave them as orphans. In fact, he promised them that when he would be physically absent from them as the incarnate Lord, he could still be present with them. In fact, he promised them that when he said, And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
And in his upper room discourse in John's gospel, we see how Jesus is with his disciples to the end of the age. All of his disciples. And that is by sending the helper. Sending the Holy Spirit. Sending the Spirit of Christ. So this with him reality isn't something that's just confined to the 12 apostles here in Mark chapter 3. He has not left any of his disciples today as orphans, but has poured out his Holy Spirit for his presence to be with us and for us to be with him. And we need to cultivate that mindset and that mentality even now. I don't know about you, but it's oftentimes easy to compartmentalize my being with Jesus. That I'm only with Jesus on the Lord's Day. And there's a, there's a sense in which that is the climactic and heightened time to be with Jesus and to be with his people. And have his near presence with us on a day like today in gathered worship. There's no doubt about that. But we see that his disciples were called to be with him even beyond the Sabbath day. In a day-to-day fellowship and communion with him. And we need to cultivate that mindset as well because that is the reality. That for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are united to him by his spirit. His spirit has come to take up residence in our hearts. He has been shed abroad or poured into our hearts. And this is a wonderful reality that we get to take him with us wherever we go. And so Jesus called the twelve to be with him even as he calls you and me today to be with him. By his spirit being with us. But there's a second purpose. And this touches more upon the official capacity of these particular twelve. You see that they were not only to be with him, but that he might send them out. That he might send them out. And this is really where we get the the official title for apostle. Apostle apostello in the Greek means to send. And so uh, this is why we oftentimes call the twelve the apostles. And why scripture calls them uh, the apostles as well. But then we see that this sending is for a twofold purpose. That he might send them out to preach and have power to heal sickness and cast out demons. To preach and to powerfully heal and cast out demons. Once again, I think that we can take this and not keep it at an arm's distance from us and think, well, this is simply recounting for us an official apostolic duty. And although that's certainly true, There is still much for us to glean from the principle of what we see here. The point is this in what we see, that Jesus called these twelve to learn from him in order to act on his behalf to do what he's already been doing. Remember, Jesus up to this point has been busy at work doing the will of his Father, preaching, for that is the reason why he was sent. Healing, casting out demons. And now Jesus, having called these disciples to himself and calling them to be with him, to learn from him, he's now going to send them out to do exactly what he's been doing. Now what we can take from that is the simple fact that Jesus calls people to himself, to fellowship with himself, to then go... And be little versions of himself. In fact, that's exactly what it means to be a Christian. 
Christian literally means a little Christ. And that's what the disciples were called. They're in Acts chapter 11 in Antioch. Acts 11, we're told that, that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And the reason why the disciples were called Christians is because they were doing the things that Christ had done. And they were doing the things that Christ sent them out to do. They were living and being little Christs. Well, for you and for me, when we take upon ourselves the name of Christian, that's essentially what we are testifying to. That we are testifying to being little Christ, to being those who spend time with Jesus, to those who are with Jesus, and for those who then go out each and every week from this place, are sent out with the blessing of Jesus upon us to go and to be little Christs. Little Christ to a watching and dying world. Little Christ that when we speak, we can speak the words of Christ. That when we do, we can do the mercy of Christ. Yes, the apostles were uniquely gifted for a unique time in the church. But there's nothing essentially different about what it means to be a Christian or a little Christ today. That is doing the work of Jesus. The work that he came to do. So what does this look like for us then as we are sent out each week as Christians? Well, it's being a little Christ in your home. In fact, Scripture is full of these kinds of teachings and exhortations. That if you're a husband, you are to go and to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You're to be a little Christ in your marriage. Or children. We know that Jesus Christ came as the Son of God who did his Father's will. Jesus Christ was the perfectly obedient child. Children, you are called to be a little Christ in your home. We can extend this not only to the home, but to the workplace. As we go into the world, we are to act and think with justice, with virtue, with ethics, kingdom ethics. Jesus appointed the twelve to be sent into the world in order to present him to the world and gather the church from it. I think here we can see a microcosm of the church as well. Or a microcosm for the appointment of every Christian. You and I are little Christs to the world around us. Called to be holy as he is holy. Called to be light as he is light. In this way, Jesus sends us out. To manifest him and to continue To gather the church to himself. Well next after we see the reasons why. Jesus appoints the twelve to be with him. To go out and preach and to have power to heal and to cast out. We see in verses 16 through 19. The list now of the twelve or the, the names of the twelve. And verses 16 and 17 give us that inner circle. They are named first, and they're named here with their respective nicknames that Jesus granted to them. They have Simon, James, and John. And we considered earlier that nicknames given by a person reveal a person's insight and interest in them. And that's certainly the case here, as it is these first three that have these nicknames as the inner circle. But what do we make of these nicknames in particular? Well, let's begin with Peter. We read Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. We don't really have uh, an exact reason why, 
Jesus gave Simon this nickname. Perhaps the closest thing we can come to that is what we find in Matthew chapter 16. Of course, Peter means rock or stone. In Matthew 16, you remember that Jesus asked Peter, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus called him Peter and said, yeah, you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Peter gave a rock-solid answer to Jesus' probing question, who do you say that I am? And it's in this context that Jesus uh, either establishes or reaffirms Peter's nickname, meaning rock. But of course, Peter in the next breath would also become the stumbling block or stumbling stone. Peter also could mean stone. And he certainly was a stone of stumbling to Jesus and had to be rebuked by Jesus for not having the things of God in mind, but the things of men, even the things of Satan. And so we see that Peter is a fitting name for Simon as he was prone to give rock-solid confession to the Lord Jesus Christ, but also at times was a stumbling stone to the Savior himself, or at least was identified as a potential stumbling stone. We see something similar, actually, when we look at the nicknames of James and John. We see that he gave them the name Boanerges, that is, Sons of Thunder. Closest thing we have to something of an origin story, I believe, for Sons of Thunder would come to us in Luke chapter 9. In Luke 9, we have the incident where Jesus is not received. And because of his rejection, James and John said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just as Elijah did. And of course, Jesus rebuked them. He said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And that seems to be the, the origin behind Sons of Thunder, that these were brothers who were quick to want to avenge their rabbi, their lord, their savior, and to do so even so swiftly. And destructively uh, to others. And so what's interesting about the nicknames is that both seem to have something of a rebuke associated with them. Whether it's Simon Peter or the Sons of Thunder. And it's a good reminder to us that Jesus rebuked the ones he loved the most. This is his inner circle. And they carried these nicknames as something of a reminder of the loving rebuke that Jesus, no doubt, gave to the three of his closest disciples. We'll keep that in mind because that will serve as something of an interesting note as we work our way through this list. But the next verse, verse 18 we see another eight disciples listed here. Another eight disciples. And far from simply a list of names here, there's actually quite a story of reconciliation. Once again, serving as another microcosm for the church. And I say that because of what we know about at least two of the disciples that are listed here in these eight. We've already been introduced to one of them. We saw earlier that Levi, the tax collector, was called by Jesus to be one of his disciples earlier in Mark's gospel. And of course, Levi isn't mentioned in these 12, but his other name, Matthew, is. And so we have Matthew embedded in verse 18. 
that Matthew, being a tax collector, being an employee of Rome, collecting taxes for Caesar. And then you have this name at the end of verse 18, Simon the Canaanite. Or if you have a different translation, it might read Simon the Eager One or Simon the Zealot. In fact, that's what Canaanite means in in Aramaic. It means zealot. And a zealot, or Canaanite as he's called here, means that he was a Jewish nationalist. One who was dedicated to the overthrow of Roman occupation. Even to the point... That violence was justified. Zealots didn't do well with Roman sympathizers or traitors, as they oftentimes called Jews who worked for Rome and who did Caesar's work for him in collecting taxes from their own people. And so although this could easily be read as simply a list of names, different names, we actually need to see here in this list of names at least two of the disciples who, apart from their focal point in Jesus and being called to him and being with him and learning from him, these two would have not associated one with another at best. And at worst, the zealot would have taken an opportunity to remove or overthrow the tax collector. We don't see any such dissension. We don't see any such violence within the twelve that are called here. It's a testimony to the reconciling work that Jesus Christ works within his people. It is the fruit of The reconciliation that we have with God that begins to bear fruit on the horizontal level in being able to reconcile human enemies. Because if we can be reconciled to God, who at one time we were enemies, and if God can reconcile us, how much more can God reconcile enemies on a human level? And so in verse 18, it's not just merely a list of eight names that we see here, but it's also a story of reconciliation that happens amongst those who are called by Jesus Christ. Lastly, we have verse 19 there, and the last name to round out the twelve, and that is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed Jesus. I hope at this point you can imagine what it would have been like, at least in part, to be with Jesus, to spend time with Jesus, to even see Jesus grant nicknames to your fellow disciples, to see the interest that he took in the relationships that he had with those that he called to himself. The friendships that would have been forged as Jesus was leading these men through towns and teaching them and standing up for them and defending them. You can just imagine the friendships that this immersion experience with Jesus would have provided. And I think we need to appreciate that as we read about this last disciple, about Judas Iscariot. Who also betrayed him. That the betrayal of this one is a sad comment to close the list. Because it's a betrayal that was committed against the backdrop of close communion with Jesus Christ. And if you ever thought about what Jesus thought about Judas, You don't have to wonder because Psalm 41 tells us. We're going to sing this psalm together here in just a moment. 
I want to read for you one of the verses of that psalm. In Psalm 41, verse 9, we get the sentiment of Jesus towards Judas. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Yes, Jesus, as the God-man, knew Judas would betray him. Yes, he even appointed it from eternity past. But that didn't make his friendship any less real. And it didn't make the betrayal any less painful. And the remarkable thing here, if you know something about the betrayal of Judas, that this betrayal happened in a moment when Judas came and kissed the cheek of Jesus. It happened with a deceitful kiss as he came and likely was identifying Jesus by this kiss to Jesus' captors. And when I read this list of 12 then, and we think about the nicknames that Jesus gave to his inner circle, these nicknames that have intertwined within them something of a rebuke, and then Judas, the betrayer, being listed here and knowing that it was this Judas who betrayed Jesus by a deceitful kiss. I cannot help but think of Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27 says, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Jesus called these disciples to himself and he loved them. He loved them. He rebuked them. He challenged them. He refined them. But in the end, one of the twelve was a betrayer. One of the twelve was a traitor. One of the twelve bestowed upon him the deceitful kiss. Of an enemy. And I want to just conclude then with the simple observation. And it's put well by one author, R.B. Kuyper. He says this The little circle of the twelve apostles, which was the nucleus of the New Testament church, contained the traitor Judas Iscariot. The church at Jerusalem, upon which the Holy Spirit had recently been poured out, harbored such pious frauds as Ananias and Sapphira. Membership in the visible church does not guarantee eternal life. And those are the words I want us to take to heart as we consider the twelve this morning. One of those twelve, one of those twelve did not enter into Jesus' everlasting rest. Although one of those twelve was with him for three years of Jesus' public earthly ministry, one of those twelve is not experiencing the joy and the blessing and the pleasures of being with Jesus now. Membership in the visible church does not guarantee eternal life. Those need to be challenging words for us. That just because we can count ourselves among the church. Or because we can count ourselves among the Reformed Presbyterians. These things do not mean that you and I have eternal life. Just because we can mouth a confession of faith. Just because we can take vows of church membership. Or just because we can sit and rub shoulders with people of faith. None of these things equate automatically to eternal life. Judas would have been able to do all of these things. 
And so it's a reminder to us this morning that there is no substitute. There is no substitute for real, personal faith in Jesus Christ. In looking to Him as your only hope. Not your past performances, not your current affiliations in the church or amongst Christians. Not your future plans to get your life together. Not your intent to gain something beyond Jesus, as if Jesus is some means to a greater end. I think that's where Judas really failed. There is no substitute for casting yourself upon Christ and His grace and His provision to save you and to bring you into eternal life. And that's the call that we need to hear from Jesus today. That even as he called the twelve to himself up on the mountain that day, Jesus calls to each one of us now from Mount Zion. And he calls us to be with him. Hear that call. Respond to that call. And embrace him by faith. Embrace him by faith. And you can be assured that you will be with him forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the reminder today that we cannot trust in outward appearances, that we cannot trust even in our religious affiliations, but we can only trust in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, you know our hearts, even as you knew the hearts of the twelve that you called to yourself that day. And yet you knew one of them was a betrayer. Lord, we pray that you would protect us, all of us, from having such a heart. From having such a wicked and unbelieving heart that would affiliate with your people in public. That would gather with you in public. And yet, in the private life of the heart, betray you. Lord, protect us from having such a heart. And Lord, give us hearts that constantly desire to be with you. That constantly desire to cultivate an awareness of your spirit with us. That we may enjoy you. And rest in you. And the fellowship that we enjoy with you now would only serve as a wedding of our appetite. A foretaste of the eternal enjoyment of being with you forever. In a new heavens and a new earth both body and soul, in glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.